study tonight is, and this, if you ever pick up a, a theology book or a Bible study, this, this may seem a strange wording, but this is where you can find more of this if you want to do searches in the future. But it's called The Doctrine of Last Things, Death and the Intermediate State. Um, how many of you have heard people use the term intermediate state? Okay, a few. Okay, okay, all right, that's good. It's not a term that we often use for the period between a person, when a person dies and when the second coming of Christ is, when the resurrection is. But we're going to look at what actually happens during that time. I'm thinking very heavily when I was putting this together. There's a lot of slides in here. This may be part one. We may have to pick this up next week. A lot of the answers come in the latter part of it, but we have to build the case so that we understand exactly how to ask the right questions on this. But just to start off here, um, here is the big term, eschatology. Um, often the popular term here is is the end times, okay? Prophecy in the end times, but this is the proper term, and it is that part of theology that has to do with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul, and of all humanity, okay? So this is what people, this often makes its entry into uh, publications such as Chicken Soup for the Soul. That was a joke. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's it's a lot of heavy stuff, okay? So here we go. Um, There has been a rise in interest in this subject since post-World War II. There's some interesting historical things we'll look at. Uh, Number one, the attempted annihilation of the Jews. If you read your Bible at all, the Jews play a big part. Very powerful country, tried to eradicate them. They weren't able. Also, the establishment of a Jewish state, rise of communism, rise of nuclear superpowers, rise in technological innovation, and the rise in prophecy obsession. Let's talk about a few of these. Uh, 19... Somebody help me out. Was it, was it 1948? Was it, does anybody remember the exact day? Okay, I didn't. I didn't look that that up. But when the modern, we got the iPhones popping out now. All the smartphones. I'm going to find that. So yeah, it was it was an amazing thing because here's here's something. Israel's on the news all the time. Okay, which by the way, the president is too too busy to meet with the leader of our only ally in that area of the world. But he has enough time to go on David Letterman. I'm just going to let that one go. Um, but but honestly, that is a Huge failure. No matter what political party you're from, a a massive failure in in foreign policy. Because what you're telling is that the people who are friendly to you, we don't want you. And the people who actually killed um, U.S. ambassador and people from our embassy, that we're sorry for being us. Which Charles Krauthammer had a response that I can't repeat here. I think it needs to be modified a little bit, but I don't think that we need to apologize for allowing people to have the freedom to express themselves. Freedom of conscience, freedom of the press, doesn't mean freedom from being offended. It means the freedom to be able to have multiple viewpoints and talk about it, not kill each other. But um, with that being said, you have a group of people called the Jews. If we went back to our Western Civ books, there were all sorts of ancient Semitic people. Okay, all sorts of little groups. If you've ever read Hebrew, it's not like an Indo-European language. It's not like the Romance languages. It looks like, Dr. Patterson said, it looks like a drunk chicken. Okay, Like if you've ever seen Hebrew script, it just looks crazy. I mean, you can't make anything out of it. There's no transferability between English or any German, anything like that. It's just crazy looking. 
But yet, what we have today is, and I think we can use this, this word without overusing it, it is, I think, if you don't believe in them, you have to take into account that it could be a miracle. I think that it is, but it could be a miracle. You have this little bitty group that the Babylonians, that the Assyrians tried to annihilate, that the Greeks tried to take over and destroy. You had Antiochus Epiphanes who came and he tried to burn and destroy all the Jewish scriptures a few hundred years before Jesus. Then the Romans came and tried to stamp out all of these Jewish insurrections. And then you get this massive industrialized country with an incredibly trained military, with often better equipment than the U.S. military. And you have this guy who comes out of an absolute economic crash, and he says, I have the answer, and he ran on bread and jobs. And I can tell you what the problem is, the reason why our country crashed, and why we can use our currency for wallpaper. It's worth that little. It's because of the Juden, Adolf Hitler. Germany tried to eradicate them, but yet they came out of the rubble of the most technologically advanced nation on the continent of Europe using everything they could, even when it didn't make military sense, to kill all of them. But yet they went into another area that was populated by their most ancient enemy, the Arab. And guess who the people were in charge of Palestine during and after World War II? The British. Guess who the British's political pragmatists favored? They favored the Arabs. They would disarm the Jewish settlers who were being killed by the Arabs. But yet, out of that whole thing, this ragtag group of people who barely survived the fires of Auschwitz, when the dust settled, they won. We can go back and you can look at, read about David and Ben-Gurion and all of these military heroes, but I still don't know how they won. But they did. And then Christians all across the U.S. reading their Bibles turned to passages about the nation of Israel. And all of a sudden, this revival and interest over prophecy began to really, really grow. And then when you read in your Old Testament especially, it seems like there are these things that are happening that involve mass destruction. Well, with the invention of the A-bomb, that caused a lot of people to start reading their Bibles with prophecy lenses again. And then you look in the book of Daniel when it says, In the last days, knowledge shall increase. Since World War II, I mean, we could be here for weeks on end talking about how much technology has changed. Has anybody noticed that? Think about in the U.S. of A, think about Franklin County in 1945 when the Germans finally surrendered compared to now in terms of technology. Some of you technological scholars like Miss Iris, you have iPads. <laughs> Work in the iPad. I mean, we've got, we have, here's, here's the crazy thing. I can pick up this phone right here and there's an option called FaceTime. My brother lives in central Florida. We can both, if we're hooked up to internet, we can hold the phone up and see each other and the video is not grainy, it's not poor quality at all. And we can hear and talk to and see each other at the same time with no delay. Hello. And just, I think we're all on the same page, but I don't think all that technology comes from uh, underneath the Hoover Dam. We have the alien, uh, what is it, the obelisk or whatever that was saved there and everything. The, the movie that sometimes you have high schoolers come out of watching Transformers and like, 
dude, aliens are real. I'm like, no, you're dumb. All right, just don't. Okay, and so. And so kind of, kind of the result here is prophecy obsession. Let me just show a few pictures so that we're all on the same page. Uh, these are popular book titles. Check this out. It's got an A-bomb. It says, World War III, will it begin in the Middle East? That'll get your attention. There's one Bible scholar who said that if anyone sneezes in the Middle East, someone says prophecy's been fulfilled. Okay? Here's, here's another one. The, the modern state of Israel is... Born. I got this off off the web. Once again, a modern a modern miracle, and the fact that it has survived and they have won every war. I don't think you can just attribute that to post um, almost annihilation vengeance, saying never again. I think that you have to attribute it to to the Lord. I'm um, also the Communist Manifesto. Uh, when you read in the Book of Revelation, I'm not saying this is the interpretation, but there is a lot about the uh, Red Rider. Uh, the, or the rider on a red horse. He was given a sword, went across the whole earth to make war. A lot of people, when Russia began to come to prominence, you had this huge... You guys remember the old maps of the USSR? Remember how... Did anybody ever scared looking at those maps? I, I remember as a kid, maybe y'all weren't this way, but looking as a kid on those maps, thinking they are so much bigger than we are. I mean, look at that landmass. They've got all the stands except for Afghanistan, all the way up on the Arctic Circle. They could hide nuclear silos. I mean, it is just, it's, it's just like a strategic nightmare. And then you have the, the encroachment of, of, of communism into Africa, into places like Vietnam. And many people begin to really think about prophecy because the core tenant of Karl Marx, anybody know his nationality? Jewish. Okay. And German. Exactly. German. And an interesting that the work of a German author who was basically a bum, all right, he wouldn't work, but he would just criticize the system that said you need to work in order to eat. Isn't that easy? Right. Yeah. I'm hungry. Get a job. You're, you're wrong. I'm going to spend my life telling you why. You're like, no. So, so what happened is you had this whole worldwide movement, and the unification point in all communist propaganda was there is no God. And if you believe that, we'll put you in prison or worse. So this caused a lot of people to begin to think about prophecy. Um, I'm not trying to make fun of Hal Lindsey, but if you were in the 1970s with the Cold War at its height, and you saw this, the late great planet Earth with the Earth that's on fire. Can you guys see that? The earth is on fire. And then the, the, the newer version has the earth. I guess the earth is going to explode from the inside out. And now the newest um, copy there has the earth basically as a molten ball of lava. How Lindsay sold a lot of books. Any of y'all read The Late Great Planet Earth? Okay, I did. Just you and me, John? Okay, three? Okay. There, there's a few. Okay, I did. I did. And so what happened is actually Hal Lindsey was one of the people that really brought prophecy to, to the forefront. I just thought that those book covers would be so, you know, encouraging for your spiritual walk with Christ and see that. Which, by the way, if you ever want to sell books, just put something on the front cover that has everything dying in like a fire nuclear holocaust and people will buy your book. Okay. There's some Proverbs lessons about making money from that. So, um, and then we have things that are just borderline ridiculous. 
Okay, the Nostradamus, which actually we have it linked on our website. Ray Comfort did a debunking documentary on the prophecies of Nostradamus. Okay, so let not your heart be troubled if you read the tabloids that says the world will end on 5-11-08. Okay, because I think they were, they were wrong. Ma'am? We missed it. Yeah, we, we missed it. We're in some type of a different um, environment. This is actually a cutout from a chick book, now the chick tracks. And these are the four horsemen there in the book of Revelation. Very, very, this is actually a children's book, believe it or not. And I was absolutely mortified because this looked like He-Man. He actually, actually, I was like, oh, He-Man's in the Bible. Wait, no, this guy's coming to kill everyone. So let's, uh, let's turn to what prophecy, and this, this is on your notes if you want to follow along and jot scriptures down as well. Um, what prophecy in eschatology should remind us of is Christ's ultimate victory not our so-called impending doom. Okay, are we all on the same page with that? We know that Christ is coming back to judge the world, but that for us results in His victory and our deliverance. So what it should do is motivate us to share the gospel. Amen? Okay? It's not a time to get scared. It's a time to get busy. And also invest our treasure in heaven. Once One day everything is going to turn from into dust or rust, so it's our job to use what God has given us and the time that He's given us to put it where it needs to be. And the amazing thing is that it's not so much, well, that means I have to give more to missions, that means I may go on a mission trip or whatever, but when we get invested into what God wants to do, like what our church did in Costa Rica, the joy that was in the people who went and the people who gave money so that the people who went could go is absolutely unexplainable. So, what we have to do here is we're going to try to break this down in the few minutes that we have. It may spill over next week, but a Christian understanding of death. Okay. What is death? Number one, it's a cessation of life in our physical body. Alright? Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's also the separation of body and soul. And without getting into a lot of details here, there are some times where the word soul is used for spirit and the word spirit is used for soul. Uh, throughout discussing this, we're just going to use the word, if you see soul or spirit, they're going to mean basically the same thing, that which we truly are, which will endure in either heaven or hell once we die. Because you can get into the dichotomous, which says that we're, soul and body, or the trichotops says we're body, soul, and spirit. But if you go the other way, then where does one of them go in between um, our death and and Christ's return? Ecclesiastes 12, 7, and the dust returns to the earth. So the dust returns to the earth, but as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. When you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, they love to go here. Alright? Adam returned to dust, but Adam's body did, but who Adam actually was, his spirit went to the Lord. Uh, Death is also a powerful curse. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ paid the penalty for us. He became a curse for us. Now, 
We don't have time to really let that sink in as much as it needs to be. But the fact that I'm saved today is because Jesus became what I should have been. Jesus received what I should have suffered. Okay? That means that all of us are living on borrowed time. All of us. That means that it's not our life, it's not my life, it is His life, and He gives it to us so that we can enjoy it and bring glory to Him. So finally, it is not, this is very very key, it's not a cessation or an extinction or an annihilation of existence, but a transition to a different kind of existence. James 2.26 For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And notice that the body, when the spirit or the soul leaves, the body dies. When the body dies, the spirit and the soul um, depart from one another. So here's a question that often comes up. What about the second death? Okay, uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, it speaks, and especially Revelation will emphasize the second death. What does that mean? Let me give you a statement by uh, Millard Erickson. Not all of this I could fit into your notes. I'm not sure if that made the cut. But um, we wanted to, to keep it at least to, to two pages. Here's what he says. The second death is an endless period of punishment and of separation from the presence of God. The finalization of the lost state of the individual who is spiritually dead at the time of physical death. This is what will happen at the very end of the end, second coming and so forth, when there will be the final judgment. Okay? And death and hell. Revelation chapter 20 is a fearsome, fearsome chapter. I mean, it's the the kind that the old preachers used to not shy away from. Okay? The great white throne judgment. That death and hell and all of that were thrown into the lake of fire. So we can understand the second death as all those people who were already in hell from the time that they died, if they had rejected Jesus Christ, if they had not been born again, they are in hell. Hell will be cast into the lake of fire, and that is the second death in the sense that they are absolutely cut off from everything good. Bad places in the world right now. Uganda. Okay? Darfur. Syria. Those places still, in some measure, experience the grace of God. There is still the mercy of God and that the sun shines upon them. There is still the mercy of God that they do have the time to be forgiven. There's still the mercy of God that they can breathe. But the second death is the ultimate removal of every. Thing good. It is that final closing off between every aspect of God and that person. And C.S. Lewis had a point. Once again, he, he's a writer, but I think he's very interesting. He said that the door to hell is locked from the inside. When we take into account what the Apostle Paul says about the unsaved person hating God, being an enemy in their mind through wicked works, it's the Really, if we got down to it, no one would want to be in heaven because heaven's not just a place where we get everything we want and it's kind of like we go into a nice restaurant and the angels come up and they say, what would you like to eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb? And we say, I'll take a home-cooked, you know, roast beef and this and that. It's not that all. Heaven is being in the presence of God. Right? 
And from that, everything good comes. Heaven is not heaven because it has all the amenities, right? Heaven is heaven because that's where God resides. And so, if we take C.S. Lewis's point and the rest of Scripture, people don't want to be with God. That's why they run from Him now. And really, if we think about it a little bit deeper, if God forced everyone to be in heaven with so many people absolutely hating God, heaven would be hell. But we'll, we'll talk about that another time. So here is the question that probably most of us are wanting to, to answer tonight. What happens during the time between a person's death and the return of Christ? A couple of application points here. It is incredibly important that we minister to the bereaved. Can I get an amen on that one? When people lose someone close, it is so important that we're there. Right? Here's two possible reasons why many Christians feel inadequate for bereavement ministry. Okay? Number one is a lack of knowledge. Can anybody say, sometimes I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Here, here's a, I hope this will be helpful. Be there. Okay? Be there. Tell them you love them. If the Lord brings something to your heart that you know the Holy Spirit is just telling you to say, you say it, but don't feel pressured to come up with this great oratory speech on how all things work together for good and their child has just died, okay? Or the girl's mom has just passed away or some tragedy like that. Be there and let the Lord minister through you uh, to them. But here's another reason is liberal theology, okay? How might liberal theology hold us back from being able to help people either be there or give them good answers during times of bereavement? We're talking about death. This may help us. A lot of times the liberal theology, they don't even want to talk about judgment. So their thing is, no matter what their spiritual state was in their mind, oh, they all went to a better place. Mm. Okay. Uh huh. So on one hand, we can have the desire that's good to care for people, but we tell them things that aren't true. Okay. One thing that I never do if I ever preach a funeral is say we know for sure that they are in heaven. Do you know why I don't say that? Even if it's a person that from all intents and purposes has lived their life for Jesus Christ. You know why I don't say that? I don't know. Do you know? Does the preacher that sometimes we go to funerals and he's just up there waxing eloquent about what they're doing? Bro, you don't know. And I try to be very polite about this stuff, but I, I have serious issues with whether the person has lived for the Lord, so we think. Because it could be that they were the biggest hypocrite but nobody ever found out. Alright? We hope that that's never the case, but it is very possible. Why a pastor would stand up and say, we know, we know, we don't, we don't know. What we do know is that Jesus Christ says, whoever believes in me shall not perish, but shall have her, have everlasting life. So and so, as far as we know, they claim to believe that. Let me talk to you about the promises of Jesus for all who believe. Now, whether that person truly believed and repented, that's between them and God, I don't know. But what we do know is whatever he says he'll do, if we trust him, he will do it. Okay? And liberal theology, Ben, what you pointed to, do you know that a lot of liberal theology does not believe that there is a physical resurrection? What that means is that 
when Jesus rose from the dead, it was a spiritual resurrection, quote unquote, which by the way, and we've, we've talked about this in past talks, if you ever want to deny something, just say it was a spiritual such and such. That way you don't have any, you don't have anything invested into it. Because a spiritual resurrection, what is that? You can't, you can't weigh that. You can't stake anything on that. I mean, it could be a spiritual whiff of, of love or, or emotion or, you know, something like that. But if Jesus physically rose from the dead, he promises that one day we will be given a glorified body so we can place faith in that. A lot of liberal theology doesn't go into really helping people because they don't believe that the people are actually conscious at all. Because if there is no resurrection of the body, once you're dead, you are dead. Okay? What we're going to look at is not liberal theology. Okay, I don't know if y'all have noticed, but your pastor's not liberal. I mean, maybe that may be something somebody's caught once in a while. I don't know. But uh, here's the three main views on the intermediate state. Um, and actually, hopefully we're not any one of these three. We're going to look at a different swing of things. Um, but number one will be soul sleep. All right? Uh, sleep is a common biblical metaphor for death. Stephen in Acts 7.60 is referred to he went to sleep when he was killed by the council. Uh, David in Acts 13.36 is referred to as being asleep. Lazarus. In John 11, 11, asleep. Paul actually uses it four times in 1 Corinthians 15 and three times in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 15. Okay? So here's a few problems with this. But which, which by the way, before, before we break down a lot of the problems, um, <clears throat> when we read the Bible and we see things like so-and-so slept, or if you're reading the book of Kings or Chronicles, and a king dies, and it says he slept with his father. And you're reading your Bible, and for some of us, imagery like that kind of makes us feel a little uncomfortable. And if you're one of those, this is, and I'm with you, why might reading when someone died, the Bible says they slept, why might that cause us to feel a little uneasy? Not about the truth of the Bible, but just like, what does that mean? Or maybe you guys have it all figured out. I'm actually, not sure. I, I went through that for a period because we had a, a time when we were actually going to an Adventist church years ago. Mm. And that's one of their foundational beliefs, the soul. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time feeling very strange about that because they rattle off quite a few different verses mm-hmm. that seem to support that. But then there's those verses like where Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, the problem is, is you can't be both. It has to be one or the other. And then there's not really a ready answer for the denominations that, that push that, that particular doctrine. Hmm. And it just is really radical. Right. And yeah. that's one of those people are lost for lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Good, good point, Michael. I appreciate you sharing that. The view, and I don't think I actually had to define this before we discuss it. Um, soul sleep would be whenever a person dies, they are not consciously in the presence of the Lord or consciously in hell, but it's just they're they're not conscious. Okay, they're, they're, doesn't mean that they're they're annihilated. They're just asleep. 
Okay? If we hold to that view, we're placing a lot of theological investment into a metaphor. Okay? Now, if we come to it first off and we're not sure what it means, it could mean, literally, their soul is sleeping. But it very well could mean something else. It could be a metaphor. But then we'll come to those pesky verses that talk about that when you die, you go to one of two places, which a lot of people today don't really want to hear. We'll come to that, Michael. Here's a few problems. Um, Verses that attest to the conscious existence after death and before the resurrection. Okay? Um, One would be the rich man in hell. Luke 16. Anybody remember how the rich man was sleeping? How was his quality of sleep? Rich man in Lazarus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's not—he's not asleep. And some people say, "Well, Jesus was giving was giving a metaphor." This is what liberals will say. This is where we can—you know—if you ever been fishing and you catch a fish and you just kind of let it take the line for a little while, let him take that line. Really. So Jesus wasn't really talking about a real man in hell. No, he was illustrating a greater concept. If we believe that hell is a metaphor, if we believe that the rich man's story was just a metaphor, what we are really saying, and if, if we can grab a hold of this, we can really help people who have been confused by Bible-denying Bible, Bible denying liberal theology. What we're really saying is that Jesus was telling us that hell was so and is so terrible and horrific The only way I can explain it to you is by this metaphor, which itself is horrific. That means that if we take the rich man in hell as a metaphor, that means that it's a million times worse. And that's the only way Jesus, God in the flesh, could unpack it to our human minds. So if somebody tries to deny hell by saying it's a metaphor, then we actually say you're giving hell steroids. And it's and it's even it's even worse. Uh, number two, the second problem with this soul sleep theory is that you're taking quote unquote sleep as a purely a liter a literal description, um, which I don't think that it, it is. Number three, the unity of the human person. Now think about this. What is the basis of our identity? If soul sleep, then our body is. Right? Like who is the real you? This would mean that the soul and the spirit is synonymous with the body. Here's what the soul sleep people say. They say that you will be resurrected one day, but that if your body dies, then you essentially don't exist except for some soul sleep. And if that's the case, then God would have to resurrect the exact molecules, which we know when a person dies, often those molecules you know, go back to the dirt and it goes into the water and so forth. So God would basically have to, in some cases, maybe even take people apart. And if this is the case, that we are our body, then that means that the materialist who tells us, tell us that there is no soul, which, by the way, the soul is the immaterial part of our body, right? Or the part of us. Like the soul, the scripture says, is not something that's physical. So if we say that soul sleep is real, what we're saying is that there is no difference between my body and my soul and my spirit. That means that the decisions that we make for Jesus and against Jesus can be explained chemically. 
That's how we explain physical reactions, you know, our reflexes and so forth. And if that's the case, then there really is no free will. There really is no choice. Everything is chemical. But a lot of times the people who want to tell us that we just sleep, they, they fail to overlook, fail to overlook those points. So let's go to uh, number two, purgatory. Um, where do we start? Problems with purgatory. We all know that purgatory is a place of suffering to where you suffer to wash off um, your past sins. Uh, problem here would be that when you clean up for uncleansed aspects uh, of your life, Thomas Aquinas says this, this is the reason why we posit a purgatory or a place of cleansing. He was a medieval Roman Catholic scholar. What problems may we as Christians have with someone who tells us that we have to suffer for what we have done in order to be good enough to enter God's presence after death? What may be some Bible responses? Well, it'd be the, with him dying on the cross for us. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's why he died, was to cleanse us of those. Scripture says his death was completely sufficient to pay for mm-hmm. all sins. Okay. And you're saying here, eh, it's not really quiet, you've got to suffer mm-hmm. a little more to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Sure. 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 Let's imagine for a moment that we're a pope, that we hold all of Europe in our hand, and we can make a lot of money if we tell people that the way that you get out of purgatory is what's that? Go ahead. Yeah, you, you pray so that they can, the priest can conduct a mass in the honor of your dead relative, and those prayers kind of go to their accounts. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And a man named John Tetzel who went around Europe and, and the saying was that when the coin and the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Okay? Now th- this this is this is somewhat humorous from our understanding of the Bible, but imagine if we had been back then and the Bibles were all chained to the pulpits. And we were in absolute spiritual slavery to the Roman Catholic Church. And we were told the way that you get your relatives, if you love them, out of this terrible place called purgatory is you pay for masses to be done. You know what I would do? If I didn't know any better, I probably would be paying for masses for my brother. And I would be in bondage. And I'll just say this, that the popes and the men who taught that, the one thing that they would need after death is an air conditioner because that is absolutely and I'm not cussing when I say this to to um, to prostitute the gospel in that way is one of the most damnable offenses against God I could ever imagine to turn the gospel into a way of making money not just making money off of selling prayer cloths on TV all right but in a way of 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 extracting that from people's bereavement so, our biblical response is, you guys got Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are we saved. Here, um, let me, we're going to probably have to close on this point, but let me give you the source of the Roman Catholic teaching on purgatory, okay? I know that everybody came tonight wanting to know what 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 43 through 45 said, right? Okay? Non-canonical scripture. Here's, here's what actually happened. Um, the Maccabees were a group of, of Jewish revolutionaries trying to throw off uh, the pagans who were in charge. And there was a group of Jewish warriors that had been ambushed and killed. They were found with necklaces that had a 
like an image of a pagan god on them. And if you were a Jew, any type of image was shame, shame, shame. So here's what happened. The leader, Judas Maccabeus, his nickname was The Hammer. Isn't that cool? That would be the greatest movie if somebody could go back and make a movie about the Maccabees. Here's what he said. He took up a collection man by man to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted well and honorably, taking accounts of the resurrection. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead. Wow, Miss Pat. Miss Pat with a funky ringtone. All right. <laughs> Maccabees and funk does go together. All right. And he, he concludes, the book concludes, therefore he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. This is nowhere found in the Old Testament where God said, do this. Maccabees is not even a canonical or a true biblical book. But if you're the Pope and you've got all of the documents and the only people who can study it to cross-examine you is your guys, and you can pull out 15th Maccabees out of Grandma's shelf and this and that and tell the population this is what it's saying. Pay us and we'll pray your dead relatives out of purgatory. And so, y'all, we're out of time. Um, next week we're going we're gonna to bring this to a conclusion. And I'm sorry if you absolutely um, want to know. I've got the, the notes on there that you can do the research. But hopefully see you back next week and we will uh, conclude this with some good illustrations of what the Bible actually teaches. I kind of feel bad tonight because we've got all this garbage that I've taught you that everybody else believes. So so read the notes and pray to Jesus tonight and hopefully we'll not return heretics before next week. So um, I love y'all and let's let's pray.